Your patient plans a business trip to Mumbai, India. Can he drink the bottled water there? He then plans a vacation in Cancun. Is it safe to eat an apple from the local street vendor? You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Today we are discussing travel medicine. In this show, we will be focusing on food and water issues, prevention of the most common travel ailments. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Dr. Phyllis Kozarski. Dr. Kozarski is an expert consultant in the Division of Global Migration and Quarantine at the CDC. She is also a professor of medicine and infectious diseases in the Department of Medicine at Emory University. She is one of the editors of the CDC's Medical Guide for Travel Medicine, Yellow Book. Welcome, Dr. Kozarski. What is traveler's diarrhea? Most people know what it is because they've, they've had it before, but basically it can be defined as having three abnormal loose stools within a day period at any given time. With tra- associated with travel. And that's the definition, no fevers required and nothing else. Is that correct? That's correct. What is the microbial origin of traveler's diarrhea? For the most part, still, people feel that enterotoxigenic E. coli is the most important organism responsible for traveler's diarrhea. And that really is the organism and the, what we try to prevent, and that's what we try to self encourage self-treatment when people are traveling. However, there's a handful of cases all the time of other kinds of bacteria, Salmonella, Shigella's, Campylobacteres, Vibrio, and a variety of other rarer organisms, as well as parasites such as Giardia, a very, very important part of traveler's diarrhea, and probably some of the more rarer amoebic disease and other parasitic infections. Do people get traveler's diarrhea simply because they're exposed to a normally non-pathogenic E. coli in a different country, or is this uh, more useful to think of truly as uh, food poisoning that is a bacterial contamination of food that's not prepared hygienically? I think the latter is probably reasonable. Oftentimes, there are so many ways in which Food can get contaminated right from when food is grown initially and animal feces are used for fertilizing it, when people harvest food, when people process food, when food is prepared, when food is put out on buffets, when food is served, when food is put on the plate. There are many, many ways in which it can become contaminated. And even when people are staying in lovely deluxe facilities, that doesn't mean that the people in the kitchen or the servers or preparers of food have the same level of knowledge and understanding about sanitation as we do, such as something simple like washing your hands after going to the bathroom. Well, uh, one of the things that I want to focus on is the almost annual outbreaks that the CDC seems to be consulted on for cruise ships. Tell us a little bit about what the organisms involved are and what the cruise ship lines are doing to prevent this. Okay. Well, when we talk about cruise ship illness, certainly 
there is a, always a number of people, just like in anywhere else where there's what we call a biological island. You put a large number of people, and nowadays there's thousands in one place for a lengthy period of time. And all it takes, it's just like a daycare center. All it takes is one or two people initially, and things get contaminated very readily. When we talk about some of the more recent cruise ship outbreaks, they have been due to something called norovirus, or what we used to call the Norwalk agent. And that is a virus that is pretty hardy, and it gets on things, on what we call ephomites, or things that are not living on surfaces. And it can live there for a while and easily. So it's not as easily killed as some other things. And all one has to do is lean on something, touch something, put your hands as we do oftentimes to our mouths, noses, rub our, whatever we do, touch our mucous membranes. And it takes very few organisms to cause disease, unlike with toxigenic E. coli, where it may take ingestion of a large inoculum. In this situation, it doesn't. So one has a group of people who have nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. It's a pretty uncomfortable and miserable thing. And when so many people have nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, and they're also touching surfaces, and they're also sitting close to one another in the little movie theaters or, or in the touching the things in the gym, even that, that during their incubation period, or when they're feeling better but not, they're still shedding, you can see how the illness and the case of numbers can be magnified. Cruise ships are working in conjunction with CDC, and they always do in order to clean. Very, very difficult to clean after norovirus and, and get rid of the virus on all surfaces. If you have just joined us, you are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Dr. Phyllis Kozarski, a nationally recognized expert on travel medicine. We are discussing food and water issues, prevention of the most common travel ailments. Given the notoriety of these cruise ship outbreaks, are there any new procedures, precautions, or technologies coming to the fore to try to reduce this difficult problem in the future? I think for the most part, it's a matter of education now and getting everybody up to speed. It doesn't appear that they need new disinfectants. It's just a matter of how to do things thoroughly and how to educate people and also how to educate the folks going on to cruise ships in terms of prevention and in terms of if they become ill, what they should be doing. So I think one of the biggest things, of course, is hand washing. Absolutely. And not really, the emphasis is really not on the kitchen staff. It's really on the 3,000 passengers. Absolutely. Okay, so how safe is bottled water? That's always a question that comes up, uh, certainly in my travels. You know, you're going to a third world country, perhaps a rural part of Mexico or rural India. How safe is the bottled water there? I mean, what, what's stopping them from just taking it out of the river, running it through kind of a one-millimeter filter and dumping it in a plastic jar? There is nothing that prevents that. As we say in the United States, there are outbreaks related to our own bottled water. So people have been known to just 
refill bottles and the tap in the back and then put it on the table. It is probably safer to drink a heated beverage or a carbonated beverage, carbonated water. Not because the carbonation implies any bacterial cytal quality to it. It's just because it's been processed for sure. Bottled water isn't necessarily inherently safe, particularly on the local conditions or the country that you're in. The way to treat water is three methods, boiling, filters, and chlorine or iodine, adding bactericidal or microcidal agents to it. I guess it's really not appropriate to only boil water if the water has got a lot of particulate matter in it. Is that correct? If it's got obvious dirt in it, usually it's recommended that you even filter it through a gauze pad or something like that. But boiling really is the safest way of preparing water for drinking. Any length of time that you need to boil the water? Not really, because if you think about it, people used to say a minute or five minutes, but in the time that it takes to get to a boiling point, it's actually being going through the process of, of killing things during that period of time. So just bringing water to a boil will really kill off most things. You don't have to continue to boil it. So this is, I think, probably one of the most important take-home messages. Boiling will kill just about everything. It, it works against viruses. Yes, everything. Gets rid of even these more resistant organisms. Yes, as a matter of fact, it does a much better job on that than the halogens or than the iodine and chlorine, which you have to actually keep water in the halogens for a while to get rid of cysts. Even cysts from Giardia amoeba take a while. These filters that are very popular in camping stores, can they filter out viruses? Yes, they can. Although for the most part, these micro strainer filters with a pore size of like 0.1 to 0.3 micron range remove the bacteria and some of the parasites like the protozoa from drinking water, but they do not remove viruses. Most of those people who use those filters really should be advised to disinfect the water with iodine or chlorine after filtration. Some of them come with additional filters effective against viruses, but they really should specifically say that, and there are no guarantees. Well, I think most of the commercially available filters do suggest using iodine or chlorine as well. As a matter of fact, they come packaged typically with chlorine as they're bought off the shelf. What if you do get sick? What measures can you take? And I realize that some of this may be a little bit obvious, and the most obvious one is fluids. In terms of trying to rehydrate, why don't you rank the following substances? Water, Gatorade, carbonated beverages, and uh, just salt water. Well, you started out... Exactly right. Water would be first. Gatorade, which is sort of similar to salt water, a little bit similar. And then I would say carbonated beverages last. For the most part, most people are just lacking water. When it gets to the point where they're, they're needing, almost needing intravenous fluids, that's when they need salt and other other additives, but for the most part, people just need water. And if they're needing salt and other ad additives, taking it orally probably is not going to be as effective as just getting it intravenously. It depends where one is, how eager you are to have something placed intravenously. For the most part, we do a pretty good job and kids do a pretty good job at rehydrating orally.
You know, that's the way it's been done for many, many, many years in many places around the world very effectively when people have cholera and things like that. But in in our circumstances, uh, when people are down quite a number of liters, we often give them the adjunct of intravenous fluids because it goes faster. But for the most part, people are lacking water. I want to thank Dr. Phyllis Kozarski, a nationally recognized expert on travel medicine and editor of Yellow Book, who has been our guest. We have been discussing food and water issues, prevention of the most common travel ailments. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Be safe. Be informed. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.